again to 1 Peter chapter 3. Been for this summer, started a series in 1 Peter. We've been on page 1015 in these Pew Bibles for about six months, it seems. That's the same page. We're on the same page. Uh, and that's where 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and following uh, are. So let me invite you to turn there. I'll begin reading in verse 8 through verse 17. Hear God's word. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may put, be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It's very important to know that all of us here, every person here, has a worldview. All people have a worldview. And that's a scheme, you might say, by which a, a person interprets what is around them, the life, the world. Uh, normally, a worldview attempts to answer four questions. The first question is the question of origin. Where did we come from? How did we get here? The second issue or question is the question of meaning. Does life have purpose? Is there a point to life? Third is the issue of morality. Are there really such things as good and evil? If so, how do you know what is good and evil? And are these true for everyone? And last of all, the fourth is the issue of destiny. What happens to a person when he, when he or she dies? Is there life after this life? You and I probably consciously or subconsciously uh, answer those questions. The Bible presents a worldview. That's what's presented here. The Bible is, is answering or addressing those four issues, the issue of origin, the issue of meaning, the issue of morality, and the, the issue of destiny. Previously in this sermon series on 1 Peter, I mentioned that if you are confused by such a big book, and this one has thin paper, and you know they can get a lot bigger than that if the paper is thicker, but if you're confused by such a big book, you can reduce the message of the Bible down to two simple statements. And the first is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness for sins. That's the first statement. And the second is, to those who have believed and have received forgiveness, it says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Two statements 
always have to be in that order and not reverse the order or it pretty much negates both of them. You cannot live a life worthy of the gospel until you have believed the message about Jesus and been saved from sin through it. So we live from life to life. Our life for God is a gift returned for his far greater gift to us. Now, if you've been here over the past several weeks, one of the three or four books I use a lot in this study is R.C. Sproul's book on First and Second Peter. And he mentioned there that one of the rallying cries of the 16th century Protestant Reformation was the Latin, two-word Latin phrase, corum Deo, which means before the face of God. The idea is that even though God's face is not visible to us, it's hidden, we should live every moment of our lives with the awareness that we are before him. We are in his presence. And though we cannot see him, he sees us. And so to apply that, you need to ask, am I conscious of my actions when I know I'm being watched? Especially by someone whom I respect. The reality is that God sees and hears everything all the time. I had a friend that recently sent me a video. And in that video, uh, I had read about a very, very large church in, in uh, Florida where uh, some months ago it was revealed a pastor had been unfaithful to his wife uh, several times, it would seem. And uh, so he was the founding pastor of this, this very, very large church. And he, uh, the fellow in the pulpit that day loved this man very much. He'd been an assistant pastor there for a long time. He loved that family, so he was in a position to say some things that were pretty direct. And he asked a question that has haunted me. And he asked over and over in his message to that church that day, or he made this statement, but then asked the question. He made this statement, you know, our brother Joe, whatever his name was, the pastor, he said, our brother chose to do things in God's presence that he would never do in our presence. He chose to do things that only God would see, but not where we could see them. I don't remember much else of that 20, 30-minute message, but every day pretty much I've thought about that. Chip, what are you choosing to do only in God's presence that you would not do in the presence of anyone else. Well, that's the concept of living quorum Deo, before the face of God. Peter's calling us in this letter as followers of Christ to live before God, before his face, as we relate to authority, as we relate to mistreatment, as we relate to one another. Now, I won't go back to the very beginning, but last week we looked at verses 8 and 9. I read them again this morning. If you were here, we saw this is a section. He has, he has dealt with how believers are to, work, to deal with authority over them. They're dealing in the workplace. They're dealing marriages when one is married to an unbeliever. And now he's saying, I want finally, in verse 8, finally, in other words, here are some things for all believers. These are not specific to a situation. These are for all uh, Christians. And he, he said, have unity of mind, a sympathy, brotherly love. We looked at each of those. We're not to return evil for evil. Now, we cannot produce those on our own. Those only come from the Holy Spirit. If you heard that sermon or if you hear this sermon as well, I went to church today and the pastor, uh, he gave us six points of how to live, how to have a good life. 
and if I do these six things, then I'll, the result will be a good life, then uh, I am not communicating what the Bible says because there's no way you and I can do these things. The Holy Spirit must work those in us and through us, uh, not things that we check off our list that by our own effort we accomplish. So he starts, and he, he asks this question for, in, in verse uh, 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, do you desire to love life? Do you desire to see good days? This is a quotation from Psalm 34, primarily verses 12 to 16. His logic is, if you want God's blessing, if you want to see good days, if you want to love life, then there's certain things you do and you don't do. Now, we know that Psalm 34 was like a catechism in the early church. This morning in our worship, we used a question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. That is the, uh, the oldest form of Christian teaching is catechizing. To catechize is to teach through a question and answer memorized approach. So what is God? God is this. Who am I? What is sin? And so, parents, you can't improve upon teaching something like the children's catechism to your children. Let me give you an example, not from a child, but from an adult. I was with Hal Farnsworth a few weeks ago in Athens. If you know Hal, many of you do, he was your pastor when you were in college, and he's going to be our speaker at our missions conference coming up in February. But I had gone to meet with him. I'd seen my daughter, and I had another meeting with a guy who does international ministry up there. And so I was set to see Hal, and we met in a coffee shop that afternoon. And we are in line, and there are people starting to be behind us, and we get to the counter, and Hal loves to engage people in conversation. He loves philosophy. And so we meet this fellow who's not from the United States, obviously, and by his accent, and uh, Hal says, well, why are you here at, at, at the University of Georgia? He said, well, I'm, in, I'm, a, uh, I'm studying the philosophy of comparative religions. <laughs> and I went, uh-oh. And Hal... <laughs> Hal said, you're my kind of guy. You're the kind of guy I like to talk to, which they did as people lined up behind us. They're off into this, this, this metaphysical conversation right there. And I'm aware of my surroundings, and I'm like, we need to, you know. And so we finally get up. They have to stop. And we meet for like 60 minutes, Hal and I do, and then we get ready to leave. Well, he goes back to pick up where we left off with this guy working at Jittery Joe's right there, and he's getting more jittery, I guess, as we're, the longer we were there. And you know, I'm standing off to the side, and I'm, I'm kind of waiting, and I'm listening, and he, uh, he begins to ask the fellow does uh, about the Old Testament text, which is a common objection today about the scriptures. If you, you know, Bart Ehrman and all that kind of, about the text, and you can't trust the text of the Old Testament or the New Testament. So I hear them talking about the Masoretic text, and then I hear him say, well, what do you, who do you think God is? And here was the answer I heard Hal gave. Tell me if you can recognize, recognize his parents. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. He's infinite, eternal, immortal, invisible, and in his own straight out of catechism. So here's a 60-year-old guy. I guess Hal's 59 or 60. And I'm thinking, that's what you teach your kids when they're about eight years old. And that's what Psalm 34 was, apparently. So we can assume when Peter quotes this, they may have even sung it. In, in the early church, they may have sung this portion from David's psalm, Psalm 34. And it begins with, all right, who wants to see good days and love life? The Bible teaches that we're not to cling to the things of this world, that we are not to be at home in this world, but we're to set our hope on eternity. We're to look beyond the border of this world to the heavenly places, 
and our inheritance preserved for us. At the same time, we're not to despise this life. We're to love the life that we have in this world. So when the Apostle Paul, who was in prison, was faced with the possibility that he may not get out of prison alive, he may be executed, he was and then later executed, but on this occasion he was released. But as he contemplated his possible death, he said, I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, going to heaven will be far better, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he had this tension. Do I die? If I die, I go to be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain here, in other words, to keep living, I can continue to minister for your sakes. But notice, his tension was not between this is bad and this is great. It was this is great, heaven, and this is good. So it's between good and great not between bad, this life, and great. And sometimes you get the impression from many people, including some believers, they hate this life. It's just like every day is a burden. Life itself is a burden. I look forward to the next life, and yet it was Christ himself who said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly in more and more abundance. It might seem that Recommending to love life is unnecessary. I mean, after all, by nature, we do all that we can to preserve our lives, to protect ourselves, our own existence, and yet often there is a cloud of despair that seems to hang over so many. And it seems that life is more of a burden than a blessing, especially for those with no hope. As believers, we have Christ and we have hope, so we should cultivate a love for life. Some people seem to enjoy every day regardless of their circumstances. They exude a passion for living life to its fullest, and that's a good thing for believers because we are often too quick to relegate our days as being good or bad based on how the circumstances went in our opinion. Okay, did things go my way? It was a good day. Did I feel good today? It was a good day. Did I feel sick today? Did things not work out? Did that project, did that test, did that relationship, did that business deal, did what that problem not get solved? Therefore, it was a bad day. But every day should be a good day because we're in touch with the creator and author and overseer of the good days. Okay, with that in mind, let me move quickly. What does he suggest now? What's the prescription for seeing good days and loving life? Verse 10, first of all, a controlled tongue. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now I'm told by those who know such things that that's a poetic statement in Hebrew and it's parallel because it's there for emphasis. Because the line, let him keep his tongue from evil, is really no different from and his lips from speaking deceit. So it's a form of poetry like we don't use today. Uh, But the Bible says much about our speech. I have, this may surprise some of you that are younger, I have a book. And they made them, they have these binders, you know, it's about that thick. And it's a concordance, Young's Concordance. And so I looked up the word, word, which was to show me how many times that word or forms of that word are used in the Bible. And the print... Practically had to have a microscope to, uh, not a microscope, what's a magnifying glass <laughs> microscope? That really would have been small. A microscope 
found an amoeba on that page, you know, a single cell. Um, hundreds, maybe thousands of references in the Bible to our speech, to our word. Now, even if it said the word of the Lord came, it would have shown up as a reference. But I was amazed, so I began to look over how many times the Bible addresses our speech. Here's a very brief survey in Proverbs. We have such verses as, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours out folly. It says also, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Jesus said ominously in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. But perhaps no writer in the New Testament devotes more time to the use of the tongue than James. In the brief book of James, part of what he says about speech, he says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. How great a fire is set ablaze by such a small tongue. James is illustrating with various metaphors the disproportionate power and influence of the tongue to be so small. It is tiny. If you were to ask me, what is the tongue? I would say it's what I use to speak. With A physician might say it's a two-ounce slab of muscle, but James says it's a whole lot more. I've never been to Scotland. I know a number of you have, and perhaps you've seen what I've read about, and that is that on the tombstones there in the 18th and 19th centuries, they chiseled the truth about people on their tombstones. And I'm told that you can even buy tourist books with many of those sayings on them, at one cemetery I read about, there's an inscription on one tomb that said, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> James says this about the tongue, and he uses these various examples. He said it's like a bit in the mouth of a horse. The bit in the horse's mouth is right in there exercising power, incredible power. Do you know that the largest horse on record in the U.S. was a Belgian stallion named Brooklyn Supreme? I saw many pictures of it. Huge. It died on a farm in Iowa. It weighed 3,200 pounds, and yet that's, that's a lot of horse, but yet that large horse was controlled by a two-pound metal bit in its mouth. And James says the tongue is like that. It has bearing, enormous bearing on these huge issues of life, though it's so small. He said it's like the rudder of a ship. It sets the direction of your life. Ships in James's day would not have compared to the size of ships in our day, and yet a relatively small rudder directs huge vessels. Your tongue is like that. It sets the direction of your life. 
And then he says the tongue can set fire in the forest. It's like a spark. The way it can set a huge fire in a dry forest, so a misplaced word can cause a firestorm. You can see that's true of physical fire, but you can use your speech and incinerate a person practically. You can do it in this church building. I would ask that this week, if you are tempted, if you are tempted to say something about someone, something which will cause your hearer to respect that person less, be careful before you set that match because you may start a forest fire. James is saying the fire of the tongue affects the entire body. It affects your family life, your social life, your business life, your church life, your married life. It affects everything. It's incredibly powerful. And and Peter here, where he mentions that, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Satan himself is the father of all lies. He's a master deceiver. He exists constantly to deceive and to lie and to undermine the truth of God's word. Then, quickly, verse 11, he says, let him turn away from evil. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's another line of poetry, I'm told. The basic life pattern of the believer, the unbeliever, is to walk according to the ways of the world, which involves turning away from God. Peter says if you want to have a good life and see good days, then turn the opposite direction, toward God, and let him seek peace. The idea is to pursue peace, not accept it when it comes, but to pursue it. We're to look for peace which is a simple undertaking, but it's marked by passion. Are you pursuing peace with others? As a pastor for many years now, uh, much of the involvement with people is is them talking about conflict they have with someone else. Uh, and And often it's in the family. And it may be extended family members. It may be, it may be grown parents toward children, children toward parents, brothers and sisters. It, It can be all and, and then, then you, and it can get more and more complicated as life goes on. I was with a man one day in this church long ago, and I said, "Do you have any siblings?" I'd been around him for a couple of years. He said, "Yeah, I've got a sister. She lives out west somewhere." And I said, "How often do y'all talk?" He said, "I hadn't talked to her in ten years." I said, "Why don't you make her day and call her up on the phone tonight just to say you were thinking about it?" Um, but Leroy Imes died about 10 years ago. He wrote a book that had a huge influence on me, The Lost Art of Disciple Making. Many of you have read that, that have been in campus ministry. Leroy Imes was converted in the Marines in the Pacific, and his testimony is a story in and of itself. Uh, but he, uh, you can go on websites, the, the Imes Trust, and there are many of his messages and, and books that he wrote. His widow died this summer and was buried in Colorado Springs, I believe, at the age of 90. But uh, I had a friend uh, in the Navigators, and he lived with the Imes for a while, long ago. And they had a wayward son, uh, very wayward, did not even know where he was, no communication. And this guy said as he was living there that when they would leave, like if they had to go off for a speaking engagement for a day or two, they said, now leave that door unlocked in case Johnny comes home. Leave that light on. Leave the door. We don't know if he will. We don't even know where he is. But we don't want the door locked if he comes. That's the attitude right there. Seeking peace like the father of the prodigal son. Uh, he did all that he could do as far as possible, be at peace with all men. But when the time came to restore, 
he, he runs to him. He runs to him in the field. Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers. The peace we are to seek is the peace of Christ. Adolf Hitler said to his colleagues, we can lie to the people now because after we are victorious, they'll forget it. People don't, our lies always leave results. They always cause damage. God's posture, that's what entitled the last verse. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you've not read the Bible, these are called anthropomorphisms. They are allusions to the human body applied to God, though God does not have a body, but when the Bible speaks of God walks on the wings of the wind, he doesn't have feet actually doing that. This poetic language about the majesty of God So when it says here, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, the face of the Lord, it's talking about we have his full attention, that God knows all about us. If you've taught children, and I know many of you have, in Sunday school or in school or you have grandkids or raising your own kids, what's fun is is when you've ever been talking to a child, I've been knelt down next to a child, I'm talking to them, I'm not looking at them, to feel that hand come over and go, (laughs) grab your face and turn your face toward them. They want your full attention while you are talking or while they are talking. The eyes of the Lord are watching his people, and it's a loving gaze. It's not a stern glare. It's not anger. James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It avails much because God is hearing it. As a believer, you have the high privilege to come before your heavenly Father in prayer. And you're assured that He hears you, that He gives His attention to you, and that He cares about you. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It says God, the Bible here says God turns away his face from the unrighteous. So if you pray to him with a repentant heart and humility, he hears you. We're out of time, but I have one less last example from the Bible itself. If we are to be people who love life and see good days, that's not the promise of an easy life. There's nothing said here about simple circumstances. Peter's already said these people are being afflicted and persecuted because of their faith. They're not... Uh, uh, sipping lemonade on a beach. They're going through hard times, and yet it's not an easy life, but it's a, it's a good life and, and to love life amidst the circumstances. So I close with this example of how when we do this, the effect it can have on other people. Acts chapter 16, you may want to read it later or reread it, but you know the story. Peter and Silas, early missionaries, they're in the city of Philippi, And they are talking to people about Christ being the fulfillment of the scriptures. And there's a servant girl who is a fortune teller, and she is disruptive, following them around. They cast the evil, by God's power, they cast the evil spirit out of this teenage girl, I imagine, who this spirit gives her this ability to do that, and her master realizes his cash cow has just left. So he's mad. He realizes he's not going to make any money off of her now. So he incites all these people around. They beat up Paul and Silas. It says they beat them continually with rods. So they would have been all bloodied and beat up. They appeal to the local magistrate who throws them in jail. 
So here they are in jail, they're bloodied, they're beaten, they're sore, they're hurting, their freedom's been taken away from them. And here's a jailer. And I don't know exactly what the cell would have looked like, but as he locked it and walked away, he probably was expecting to hear the same thing he heard from the others. You sorry, Romans, I'll clean up the language since this is a sermon. But, you know, if we get out of here, the first person's throat I'll cut is yours. We're innocent. We didn't do it. And on and on. And yet, he leaves, and at midnight, Acts 16 says that Paul and Silas are singing. They're praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners are listening to them. They probably were surprised to hear fellow prisoners who just, with fresh wounds, singing. There's an earthquake. It's dark. The gates, the jail cells, to whatever degree they're locked up, are open. The jailer wakes up, pulls out his sword, seeing the jail is open. He assumes everyone's escaped. The punishment for a a Roman soldier asleep on duty was death. Often, they said, would be burned in their own clothes. He's pulling out his sword. He's ready to kill himself. And it says, Paul yelled out with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm! We are all here. He calls for lights. Bring the torches. They go down. And what does he say to Paul? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, it's my speculation. It's my opinion. But do you think he would have asked that question if they had treated him like probably all the other prisoners did? If they had cursed him and claimed their innocence and complained like everyone else? Why did he ask them that question? because of the response he had seen from them when they were in there. They loved life. They saw good days. And so if they had acted like everyone else, in my mind, there would have been no conversion of a Philippian jailer. Never, ever, ever underestimate your attitude about life and how it may affect others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you control all things and our lives are in your hands. And the things we experience, things that are done to us and by us, are not without your watchful eye. And so we we pray that you'd help us to do this through your Holy Spirit, by the power of Christ, to love life and see good days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open your order of service, you see the word.